when I think about Sovereign Grace Churches and Jared and you, <laughs> I certainly don't think of the ways that I'm able to serve. What I'm mostly conscious of is, is the gifts that are represented in our dear churches around the world, around this country, the gifts of teaching and encouragement that I have received from now for 30 plus years and that I don't deserve and that for some reason the Lord's been kind to give me and that this morning is focused on you, the gift that this church is to me personally and to our family of churches. Um, I, I can't overstate the gift that Jared is to me personally. I know he is this to you every week, but his unrelenting joy and encouragement. Um, it, it's just like rocket fuel for the soul to be around Jared. Um, and so you just have to hook up to him from time to time so that you can experience the joy of the Lord as your strength via Jared Mellinger. Um, and that extends also to somebody on your pastoral team. We in our own little small way, are attempting to do the bridge course down in Texas, led and served by Aaron Mayfield, who has been greatly influenced uh, by Jim. My family uh, just completed going through Marty's devotional in the Psalms. I was able to text Marty just a couple weeks ago, thank you for serving my children uh, and teaching them God's word. I've had a friendship with Joseph, going back 20 years as fellow worship leaders, and I could just go on and on. Your pastoral team is a gift beyond you and strengthens so many churches and members of those churches that you will never meet. So thank you for releasing them and encouraging them to be sent to serve in those churches. And also, I want to thank you. Um, we could not have done this conference without you. Um, and it really wasn't primarily your building, although I'm very grateful for this beautiful facility, but to have that many young people literally from around the world, some of whom are still here, um, was doubly effective because of the way Covenant Fellowship members served. I was encouraging your pastors this morning and Jared last night um, that your members served with a, a joy and a hospitality and an eagerness that I simply was delighted by all week long and loved the example that set for all of the young people that came in. So I just want to thank you. I want to say again this morning what I said last night that the only way two relatively non-administrative guys could pull off a conference that size is because of Ramona Doyle and I want to personally thank her for making that. So I, I could spend the whole morning just thanking you with the evidences of God's grace in your church and in your pastoral team, but just receive this as an affectionate greeting from all of the churches of Sovereign Grace, and it is a joy to be with you this morning. But we ought to get to God's word. So if you would open your Bibles to the book of Acts, the book of Acts, and I hope that excites you as it excites me, the book of Acts chapter 16 and verse 11 this morning. We'll read from verse 11 all the way to the end of the chapter. But before we do, I actually want to introduce the reading of the passage by a dear friend that I'm quite sure will be visiting many, if not 
most of the Sovereign Grace Churches this morning, our friend Charles Spurgeon, who visits us in multiple locations on Sunday mornings throughout the world. So let me, let me, let me read this advice from him. I found it compelling in how we should anticipate this passage. Listen to what he says. Even the holiest of Christians, he says, are those who understand, and even those who best understand the gospel of Christ, find in themselves a constant inclination to look to the power of the creature instead of looking to the power of God and the power of God alone. Even the best, even the most knowledgeable, even those who know well the gospel of Christ find this constant inclination to assess life based on the power of the creature rather than the power of God alone. In other words, we, we assess what is in front of us based on our own abilities, based on our own sense of weakness or strength. The, the missionary William Carey exhorted us to expect great things and attempt great things, but those two truths go together. It is those who expect great power from God that are willing to attempt great things for God, and too often, I think, we, we shrink our expectations of Christianity to those things that make sense based on our own power. So we, we spend our days measuring opportunities based on what we think we can carry, what we think we can handle. We risk an attempt based on our own sense of reserve and capacity. And Christianity, as a consequence, becomes a predictable, planable, commonplace journey. And what we need is a a powerful reminder of the God that we serve and the divine force that is at work to advance the gospel. And to that need comes the book of Acts. And comes Acts 16 this morning. The story of Paul in the city of Philippi is a story of God's power on display quietly at first and then loudly but on display. And it's intended to be an adrenaline shot to our soul and to force us, to force us to stop assessing life based on the power of the creature and to start assessing life based on the power of God and God alone. So with that desire, let's, let's read this adrenaline shot from Acts, beginning in verse 11 of chapter 16. This is God's word. So, Luke writes, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there... To Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. 
As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, and they proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened. Everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. And then he brought them into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. Do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. <coughs> Lord, bless the preaching and the believing of your word. The story of Philippi is the story of God's power at work, first quietly and then loudly. He works 
both ways, and we need both stories because we need to believe in the power of God alone for both kinds of moments in our life as well. The story begins, if you notice there in verse 11, with Paul arriving on his church planting journey to the city of Philippi, and he goes outside the city, probably because there was not a synagogue, and he is looking for God-fearers, perhaps perhaps a small gathering of Jews who would gather by the river to pray And finding some women there, he engages, as he always does, in gospel conversations about Jesus, the Messiah. Now, so far, there is nothing extraordinarily notable about this event. Paul, and I want you to notice this, even the mighty Paul just takes the next step that is in front of him. And and isn't that encouraging to us? Yes, Paul received divine direction to go generally in this area of the world. But when he gets there, he just takes the logical next step. It doesn't appear that he receives some kinds of angelic or supernatural guidance. He just says, well, there doesn't seem to be a synagogue. So I guess what we'll do, we'll just go to the river. Perhaps there's people there. It's so encouraging that what God does at that riverside began with just a logical next step of trying to serve the Lord. That we don't always need to wait for some divine summons. We sometimes just say, well, this seems like the next thing to do. So he goes there, and it's a quiet moment. And it's so valuable to us because quiet moments, frankly, are the majority of our life. Quiet, normal moments are the majority of our life. They're the majority of our relationships. They're the majority of the occasions where we assess the situation based on our strength rather than the power of God. How often do we assume that conversations that happen in the ordinary flow of life with people that are busy going about their ordinary lives would likely lead to no power and no conversions? How how easy to assume it's just an ordinary moment How often do we think that people who heard us talk about Jesus will surely be the same the day after they talk to us as they were the day before they talk to us? How often do mothers share the gospel with their children again just around the breakfast table assuming that nothing special will happen today because nothing special happened yesterday? How often do children's ministry workers share the next story, assuming that little will be different this week? How often do pastors preach a sermon, assuming that no conversions, nothing supernatural will take place? How often do we walk past a neighbor and assume that this conversation won't be any different than the last 14? How easy to assess little moments with little faith. How easy to do that. Little moments with little faith. Here's a little moment. It's just a conversation by a river with some ladies praying. You can imagine that some of them were also getting their laundry done by this river, getting some water, and they're also taking time to pray. And here comes this Jewish rabbi figure talking about a Jewish Messiah named Jesus. It is an ordinary, calm moment. And yet, we need verse 14. Look down at your Bibles. They are there. There is a woman there that in the providence of God is not a native, but she has moved here. She is a businesswoman. And notice verse 14b, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. 
Now, this quiet miracle is no less a miracle. It's no less a miracle because it was a quiet conversation with Paul, apparently quietly explaining God has sent his son and the expectations and hopes of a Jewish Messiah, which she apparently knew about because she was there praying, likely with other Jewish ladies, and she had some awareness of the God of the Old Testament, and he's explaining that God has sent his son, Jesus has died for sinners, and all who believe in him will be saved. And the Lord opens her heart, and she believes. She believes right there in ordinary prayer gathering, Having never heard of Jesus before, she believes. This quiet miracle is a miracle. And we need, we need the faith that Lydia's story provides to us. So that when we face quiet moments in the days ahead of us, maybe even this afternoon, perhaps tomorrow morning, we are infused with this kind of faith. Now, part of the reason that's hard is because in the providence of God, not every quiet moment produces this result. And sometimes we know that, and so we'd rather not live with perpetual faith without seeing it take place all the time. And so we just begin to dial down the faith so we don't have to be disappointed that this is just a quiet moment of faithfulness rather than a quiet moment of miracle. We dial down the faith. We think of those quiet moments as duty rather than faith moments. Do you see the difference that 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 would be? A mother sharing, a children's ministry worker, talking with your neighbor, coming on Sunday for a sermon. It's a duty moment, but it's not a faith moment because it's ordinary. And many ordinary moments are just us being faithful without knowing what God is going to do. But a biblical Christian, an Acts 16-infused Christian says, I don't know when it's going to happen, but I know that at any quiet moment, the Lord can open hearts. The Lord can open hearts. He can open hearts of a co-worker. He can open hearts of a child. Perhaps the child's heard the gospel 59 times in the last three months, but this can be the moment. He can open the heart of the wandering adult child. He can open the heart of the grandparent who's rejected God their entire life. He can open the heart of the die-hard anti-Christian co-worker who loves to mock Jesus, and he can open that person's heart in just a quiet conversation. He is able to do that. I also think that this story ought to encourage those of us who have more quiet personalities. Obviously not me. But some of us might have more quiet personalities and we might think, well, I I could never be used miraculously. Be encouraged by this Riverside miracle. This Riverside miracle, I don't think Paul was standing, listen you four ladies. Jesus has come. No, I don't think he probably did that. He just talked with them. And you can do that too. And in that quiet conversation, the power of God can be at work to open hearts. If, if we don't assess that quiet moment based on the power of the creature. And instead, based on the power of God and God alone. Lydia's are still getting saved today. And they will still get saved until Jesus returns as the church believes in this kind of power in quiet moments. Amen. Now, thankfully, he doesn't just work in quiet moments because sometimes life is loud and difficult. He also works with astonishing displays of force. 
So the story continues. As Paul in verse 16 continues going to the place of prayer, he is met by a slave girl. And this demon-possessed slave girl has provided supernatural insights and declarations to people earning her owner's money. And this demon, for whatever his malicious purpose, decides to become the town crier for Paul and Silas. Now, I don't know the tone of voice, so I'm speculating a bit here. But likely, this demonic declaration would have been proclaimed in a way that was not designed to be helpful to Paul's mission. So you can imagine this slave girl who's possessed of a demon just these men are servants of the most high god they proclaim to you the way of salvation and acts and the bible and god and paul are have no interest in disingenuous witnesses and so finally paul decides he's had enough of this and so he casts out the demon there on the spot so the power of god begins to make some noise in philippi The demon being gone, the girl can no longer provide income for her owners. They are outraged by that. So you notice that when they see, in verse 19, that their hope of gain was gone, they seize Paul and Silas, drag them into the marketplace, and when they had brought them to the magistrates, they repeat a charge that will take place many times in the book of Acts, stating, these people are disrupting our way of life. Which is both true and not true, as many accusations of the church throughout the ages are. On on the one hand, the, the Christian message is the most revolutionary message in the world. It turns people's worlds upside down. But on the other hand, the implication that it is a a political revolution, a social revolution in the sense of trying to overthrow some kind of social realities in their life, is a a false accusation. But they're taking advantage, and so they seek to gain the approval of the magistrates in viewing these men as criminals. At the very least, as political rabble-rousers. Men who are dangerous. Men who ought to be opposed. And the magistrates buy into it. And the crowd, encouraged by the magistrates, begins attacking Paul and Silas. What a transition from quiet evangelism at the riverside to apparently in a moment they are being stripped and beaten with formal approval. Paul describes this situation in his letter to the Thessalonians. He says, we were shamefully treated. Shamefully treated. So they are suffering for the sake of the gospel. Now, if, if one fear we have is that God will not move in the ordinary moments of our lives, another fear, I think, is that we will face false accusations and persecution and pain and perhaps even the loss of freedom and uncertainty in our future. These men are thrown into jail. They, they lose their freedom to move about the city and preach. And I think if we're honest, if I'm honest, many of us secretly hope that we can serve the Lord without ever facing this kind of situation. We applaud those who do face this kind of situation, but deep down we sort of hope, I I would like to sacrifice in ways that stay away from the central, comfortable life that I have. 
And yet God's power sometimes is positioned while his people are facing loud and painful suffering. Throughout scripture, it is often in the face of weakness and suffering that the Lord reveals the power of his gospel. And in that moment, I want you to look at your Bibles. In that moment, look at verse 25. Before, before the Lord does his delivering work, Paul and Silas have an opportunity. They have an opportunity. And, and because many of us have read this story before and we know the scriptures before, we can kind of rush ahead to the deliverance of God. But Paul and Silas never read Acts 16. They, they don't know about the legend of their song in the jail. They, they, they're just in jail. And you can imagine, as any ordinary Christian would, the temptation is to second guess, should we have come? Maybe I was wrong about the call to Macedonia. Maybe, maybe I, sh- I should have just left the demon girl alone. We had some good fruit on the riverside. We can't possibly reach people in the city. Imagine the worry for Paul. I've been called to, to church plant throughout the Mediterranean world, and I can't do that from a jail cell. And here I am locked in. I'm being treated as a criminal. Is, is this it? Am I, am I going to just be stuck here? The temptation to fear, to complain, to doubt, to anxiety. It would be, it would be intense when you're in the stalks in an inner prison in Philippi with virtually no friends around you and no recourse against these people because they have official approval. That the temptation would be profound. And yet in that moment, Paul and Silas are living based on their confidence in the power of God. They don't know how that power is going to be at work yet, but they will live in light of it. They will live in light of it. Instead of doubting, instead of complaining, instead of anxiety, they are singing. Singing hymns loud enough, apparently, for the rest of the prisoners to hear them. Paul and Silas have their hearts set on the greatness of God's power, even if they don't yet know how that power is going to be displayed in their current situation. They are singing of the greatness of God, even if what they are currently aware of is their own weakness and the impossibility of a task before them while they are in chains. What they choose to do in that moment is to set their hearts on God and God alone rather than assessing their situation on the power that they do not have. Now this is a crucial lesson for us to learn because there are moments in life when we are at this side of the earthquake and not the other side. Sometimes it's brief, sometimes it's long, sometimes it's lifelong. In that moment, will we assess the situation based on God's supreme wisdom and power or based on our own limitations and suffering? That's the question. Charles Spurgeon, again, helps us with this perspective. He says, servants of Jesus Christ, never, oh, what a a word this is for us, never be discouraged when you are opposed. Really? Never, never be discouraged when you are opposed. But when things run counter to your wishes, how many categories does that fit for? When things run counter to your wishes, expect that the Lord has provided some better thing for you. 
Paul and Silas must go to prison, listen to this, because a chosen person was to be converted in the prison who could not otherwise have been reached. The jailer wasn't at the river. Nay, it was not only one person who was to be saved, but eternal love had fixed its eye upon a whole house. And therefore, into prison they must go to do more by night in their bonds than they could have done by day if they had been free. And to bring to Christ some that would be more illustrious trophies of the grace of God than any they could have gathered had they been preaching in the streets of Philippi. God knows where it is best for his servants to be and how it is best for them to be. If he foresees that they will do more good with their backs scarred than they would have done if they had escaped the flagellation, then their bodies must bear the marks of the Lord Jesus and they must rejoice to have it so. Eternal love had fixed its eye on a whole house. And therefore, Paul and Silas, without knowing that, live that confidence by faith in their song. Now, we know that because we read the story, but in that moment, and in that moment for us, brothers and sisters, we must have our eye of faith looking with confidence to the greater good that God has in store by means of this opposition. So when you are opposed, when things run counter to your wishes, let me urge us to assess that moment, whether it's traffic, a wandering child, opposition from people who don't like your faith, a disappointing limitation in your ability to move for the sake of the gospel, some challenge that feels like weakness and restraint, and could I even say bondage, that your eye of faith, like Paul and Silas would say, The Lord has some design, some better thing that he has in store for the gospel, and it might include our suffering, but since our hearts are not set on the comfort of this world, and we are ambitious not for our own comfort, but for the glory of Christ, we gladly give up comfort on the path of God's wisdom for the progress of his gospel. We gladly give up comfort on the path of God's wisdom for the progress of his gospel because our heart is not set on comfort. This is why it's so, so, so dangerous to be a Christian in the West. It's so easy to live for comfort instead of Christ. But if you're living for Christ, that even in a jail, you can say, I can't wait to see how the Lord is going to use these scars and these bonds to produce the greater good because eternal love has households in view. Even in the midst of their prison worship service, God, God is preparing an earth-shaking evidence of his power to advance the gospel through them. As they are singing, in verse 25, look at what happens. Suddenly there is a great earthquake. We serve a God who can shake the earth, who can shake the earth and did And the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened while they were singing. You can only imagine the reaction, and we don't have to imagine because it's in the passage, of the other prisoners. 
surely they had never heard prisoners worshiping their God in the prison. And surely they didn't expect that an earthquake would be the heavenly response to that song. Surely not. The jailer, you notice there, on seeing that the prison had been rocked and all the doors were open, draw his sword and is about to kill himself. Now, we might think that's an extreme reaction, but it, it wouldn't be back then because you would have been considered responsible for these prisoners such that you would face their fate if you let them go. That, that's the cultural expectation. So he sees all the doors. He says, I lost every prisoner in here. And I'm now going to have to face all. I'm done. I'm going to face all of their fate. But a surprise awaits this man. Paul stops him, you notice there, by calling out, do not harm yourself. We are all here. I, I, I love that. We are all here. Somehow the other prisoners, somehow presumably decided that whatever power Paul represented, it wasn't something that they wanted to mess around with, and so they were willing to stay in their jail rather than run out. Paul persuaded, and these guys are saying, whatever you, Mr. Singerman, whatever you say, I will stay right here. So Paul persuades the jailer, don't kill yourself. In effect, he saves the life of his enemy. He saves the life of his enemy. The jailer comes and falls down before them. You, you got to notice, and you know this because you've, been, you've heard Acts preached before. You notice that the reversals in Acts are just delightful. Paul goes from being shamefully treated to his enemy falling down before him. And then later in the passage, the magistrates themselves coming apologetically, pleading with them that they would politely leave the town. There's an intentional reversal that's happening here. Those who seem to have all the power are rocked by God such that they are now the debtors of those that they had shamed. That's intentional in the passage. The passage ends that way because God is showing don't be afraid when people have apparent power over you because there will come a day sooner or later when God will show who has the real power over them. And those who shame the gospel of Christ and the church and do not repent will find in the end that shame will be their lot. There is no justice that will not be served in God's economy as he looks at the progress of his gospel. So this enemy falls down at them at their feet, then he brings them out and he pleads with them, what must I do to be saved? The power of God had rocked not just the prison, but this man's soul. And so what do they do? They preach the gospel to him. Christ Jesus came. Christ Jesus came. He died on behalf of sinners, even Gentile sinners like you. And if you believe in Jesus, you can be saved. You can be rescued so you can face even the earth-shaking God without fear. That's the good news we proclaim to you, jailer in Philippi. And apparently God wants you to come into his kingdom so you can trust him rather than fight him. And so he believes and his entire household believes and they are saved. He is baptized right then and they rejoice, it says, that they had believed in God. Now that is God's power doing what no person could ever imagine possible. What would we do? We find out that two of our most beloved leaders are in jail. We would pray, we would hope for their release, but I hope we would pray with this kind of faith. 
I don't know if God's going to do an earthquake or do it through some quiet means, but I believe God has the power to do it. God has the power to press his gospel forward. Everything is reversed. The jailer now cares for Paul and Silas. The magistrates are forced to apologize. The entire story is meant to sound to the early church that Luke is writing to like the miracle it is. Somehow, from arrival at the city, a miraculous gospel has been at work. In the quiet conversation with a woman at the riverside to the rescue of a demon-possessed girl and leading to the beating, the imprisonment of the apostle, the conversion of the jailer and his family is the result, and the final humiliation of the very persecutors who seemed so unstoppable the day before. For the church, throughout the ages, the story's meant to be a heavenly shot of adrenaline so that we would not assess our life on the basis of the power of the creature, but on the power of God alone. Now, now be careful right now. Because it's, it's possible, I think, for me and, and for all of us, it's possible to read this story as a delightful heritage that has nothing to do with this week. We, we, we hear it like we hear Grandpa's story of what he did when he was a young man. And it's like, that's a great family heritage. This is a family heritage, but it is not just a family heritage. It's a display of God's power and God's intention to show his power in the church throughout the ages. If, if we believe that the Bible is merely a history book, we do it great, great disservice. It is not merely historical truth. It is permanent revelation. And that means it must change how we are this week. It has to change how we actually view our life this week. It has to push us out of the assessing of this week's life, your, your real life. So, so seize this moment. And rather than just, oh, yeah, isn't that a great, wonderful, nostalgic story about Paul and Silas? I love that one. No, no. Does it change our life? What are you facing right now? Whether it's a quiet moment or a louder moment where you, you need to have, I need to have, my faith pulled away from viewing it through human assessment and calculations. Right now, is, is there an, a neighbor that you've been wanting to talk to, but you, you've just lacked confidence that anything good would come out of it? Acts 16 says, don't you dare doubt what God is able to do. It, maybe there's a child that has been rejecting God, and it's been so many years of praying, and you've begun to just mumble prayers out of duty rather than out of faith. Don't you dare doubt. Acts 16 says God is able to save a Lydia and a jailer. If, if you've been facing opposition online, say, or at your job because you're a Christian, don't, don't you dare doubt. God is able to do mighty things such that those who shame the gospel will be shown to be wrong when the gospel makes progress. It, it's not just a, a great historical story. It, it's present revelation of the God that we love and serve. And it's meant to change us. It, it's meant to teach us to stop assessing life based on our own capacities. I, I want you to imagine something for a moment. Imagine that you have a, a, a younger son and his mother says to him, son, uh, we have company coming over. I'd like you to go blow all the leaves off of the back patio. 
And it's the fall, and the leaves are falling. And so he goes out, and he's immediately dismayed. And he's seeing leaves fall, and he says, this is a huge job. She finds him an hour later physically blowing one leaf at a time off of the patio. And he turns to her almost in despair and says, Mom, I can't do this. Every time I blow one off, they're falling, and I can't blow it fast enough. I'm, and then here comes, and then one time, Augusta, and the whole pile came back on, and I, I, I'm trying to obey, and I can't do this anymore. And she looks at him quizzically and calmly walks to the side, picks up the leaf blower, plugs it in and says, son, blow the leaves off of the patio. How often are we like that? We see what is in front of us and we say, I can't possibly do this. The moment I make progress, something goes backwards the very things I do get undone. And so we assess life based on the power of the creature rather than on the power of God, the abilities of God. Now, we don't know how he will exercise that power, but we're to do the job plugged in and trusting his power, not based on our own Listen, this is, this is not name it and claim it. This isn't if you believe God, all the leaves gone, right? Then. No, no, we, we don't know how. There was another moment in Acts where Paul has to be in jail for a couple of years. We don't question God's timing in the exercise of his power because we trust God's wisdom because eternal love sees what we cannot see. But we live knowing the leaf blower, knowing the earth shaker, knowing that whenever he wants, whenever he wants, small moments, large moments, we serve the God who has power to convert, to save, to proclaim the gospel, to release, to advance, to plant, to evangelize, to comfort, to change, to transform, to revolutionize. We serve that God who is alive today just as he was back then. Even the holiest of Christians has a tendency to look at things based on the power of the creature. Acts 16 says, let me encourage you to imagine Lydia and the jailer here with you today. And can't you imagine them here saying, listen, I was at a river and I met Jesus. We serve the same God. We serve the same God. Perhaps you were just at some river and Jesus met you. Imagine the jailer calling out to us, oh, remember the God you serve. Remember the God you serve. Imagine Paul and Silas telling us, oh, oh, sing, sing in your difficulties because we serve this God. Imagine their voices calling out to us as they are now in glory. Trust and believe in the power of God. Refuse to assess things on the power of the creature. Trust through difficulty, knowing that divine love has a plan beyond what we can see. Trust the power of God and live your life on that power and that power alone. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, I thank you so much that you have given us the privilege of the revelation of your character and your power. And I pray that you would guard us from the doubt and discouragement and anxiety that comes when we assess things based on our own. Lord, forgive us, cleanse us. Lord, turn all of us towards a sight of your power and wisdom and a a faith-filled action in quiet moments and loud moments because that is the focus of our gaze. Lord, help us to be that way. Help my my dear friends, Lord, and brothers and sisters in this church to live that way as they evangelize, as they plant churches, as they build up this, this church and this community. Lord, let them experience your power and give them faith to see it. In Jesus' name, amen.